Hi Grace242, my name is Amanda Sogstad and I will be reading our scripture for today. Um, our scripture comes from Exodus chapter 33 verses 12 through 23, as well as Exodus chapter 34 verses 29 through 35. Listen to the word of the Lord. One day Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you and I know you by your name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will call out, your, call out my name Yahweh before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, Look, stand me near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. When Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over, and he talked with them. Then all the people of Israel approached him, and Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. But whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. Then he would give the people whatever instruction the Lord had given him, and the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face. So he would put the veil over his face until he returned to speak with the Lord. Hey Grace242! I've been really into the moon landing and the Apollo missions lately, specifically Apollo 11 and Apollo 13. I finished a book on the moon landing that Morgan had gotten me, and on the way back from our family vacation in Georgia on the plane, I watched a movie from my childhood, Ron Howard's 1995 rendition of Apollo 13. And just two weeks ago, we were about to turn our lights off for the night when Morgan turned to me and said, there's a lunar eclipse happening and it's happening right now. So we rushed outside to our deck and got to see the lunar eclipse before we went to bed. Did anyone else get a chance to see that lunar eclipse? In all of my fixation on Apollo 11 and Apollo 13, I've been thinking about how transcendent, how terrifying, and how transforming these missions must have been for those astronauts. Going back to the first moon landing, how transcendent must it have been for astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to, for the very first time in all of human history, place human footprints on a world that is not the Earth. Buzz Aldrin, I think, tried to explain that transcendence when he told NASA that he sees the landscape of the moon as, quote, magnificent, 
desolation. And as I looked up at the moon on the night of the lunar eclipse, I thought to myself, it is amazing that you can fit 26 Earths between the Earth and the moon, and we landed humans on a celestial object that's that far away. That is transcendent. And then with Apollo 13, I think about how terrifying that mission must have been. First of all, with the explosion on the spacecraft, but then even more than that, despite all of NASA's amazing and miraculous efforts to keep those men alive, they were at the mercy of so many X-factors on re-entry. What if their angle of re-entry wasn't right and they either skipped off the atmosphere or burned up on their way in? Was the heat shield cracked from the explosion and would that cause them to burn up? What about the parachutes? Would they deploy or would they still be blocks of ice because they had to turn off all the heaters in the spacecraft? And if they were blocks of ice, then the spacecraft would have hit the water at 300 plus miles per hour at splashdown in the Pacific and the mission would have been for naught. How terrifying must that have been? And then back to Apollo 11. How transforming must that mission have been for those astronauts? Buzz Aldrin talks about having visited another world, and once you've set foot on another world, there's just nothing like that. That must have transformed those men. Apollos 11 and 13 must have been transcendent, terrifying, and transforming. And our scripture reading today in Exodus shows us that God's glory is the same. God's glory is also transcendent, terrifying, and transforming. We're going to look at two passages from Exodus chapter 33 and Exodus chapter 34, but really both of these passages form one whole narrative. In fact, Exodus chapters 32 to 34 are basically all one big narrative. So in your next quiet time, I'd encourage you to sit down and just read chapters 32 through 34 all in one sitting so you can get an idea of the overall narrative of what's going on. And today, as we look at chapters 33 and chapters 34, we're going to see three T's about God's glory. And that is that God's glory is transcendent, God's glory is terrifying, and God's glory is transforming. Let's look at that first T. God's glory is transcendent. Let's look at Exodus 33. And if you look at verses 12 through 17 of chapter 33, they're kind of this dialogue between Moses and Yahweh. And Moses is holding Yahweh accountable to the promises that Yahweh has made. Moses says, Yahweh, you've covenanted with us. You've partnered with us. And now you're telling me to get on up to the promised land, but I'm not going to go unless you go with us. You have to come with us. And look at what is said in verse 14. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. So Moses says, you got to come with me. And Yahweh says, okay, I'll go with you. But then Moses wants proof. So look at verse 18. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. Does anyone remember our subtitle for this Exodus series? The subtitle is Fellowship with God. Because if it's one thing the book of Exodus shows us, it's that God wants to share fellowship. God wants to share presence. God wants to commune with and be with his people. And Moses recognizes this because in verse 16, he says, Hey, God, your presence is what sets us apart as a people. It's the distinctive factor of us as a people. So he says in verse 18, you got to go with us. Show us your presence, Yahweh. The problem is that God's glory is so transcendent that no sinful, fallen, unrighteous, rebellious human being 
can look upon Yahweh's face and live. To behold the glory of Yahweh's face as a sinful human being means death. He is so transcendent that we cannot gaze upon it. And so Yahweh devises this plan to instead hide Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then Moses can see Yahweh's back as he passes by. Now, jump ahead to Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down Mount Sinai, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. This is how transcendent God's glory is. That even after looking at Yahweh's back, Moses' face retains afterglow from Yahweh's transcendent glory. Now, one of the reasons why I want you to sit down and read Exodus chapters 32 through 34 all in one sitting is so that you can see that all of these events are on the heels of the golden calf debacle. And we talked about how the golden calf debacle is so egregious because it's an act of idolatry. But it is also so egregious because it takes something transcendent like God's glory and it reduces it to something that is graspable by human beings. In fact, so graspable that it's fashioned and designed and made by humans themselves. Look at Romans chapter 1, 22 to 23, and this time we'll read out of the ESV. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Essentially what the golden calf debacle does is it takes nobody can look at Yahweh's face and Yahweh's glory is so intense that Moses' face shines with the afterglow of Yahweh's back. It takes that and it reduces it to, hey, look at this bull statue we made everybody. The prophet Isaiah had an encounter with the transcendent glory of Yahweh. Look at Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 3. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The seraphim are chanting, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. And remember that holy means set apart. So they're saying set apart, set apart, set apart is Yahweh. Why is he set apart? Because he is transcendent. That's why. And Isaiah freaks out because he's caught a vision of Yahweh's transcendent glory. Look at what Isaiah says in chapter 6, verse 5, and we'll read out of the ESV. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This reminds me of Exodus 33, verse 20 where Yahweh says, no one can look upon my face and live. And Isaiah, having seen God's transcendent glory, thinks, I'm a dead man. I've seen what I cannot see. This brings us to the second T of God's glory, and that is God's glory is terrifying. Isaiah is terrified. He thinks he's a dead man because he's seen the glory of God. But even before he says, woe is me, I've seen the glory of God. Look at what he says in verse 5. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. God's glory is terrifying because it exposes the deepest, darkest, sinfulest parts of us. All of that junk that we would want nobody to see, all of that disgustingness, all that sinfulness, all that rebelliousness, all that darkness is thrown into sharp focus when exposed to the light of God's glory. Look at Exodus 34, verse 30, as Moses comes down the mountain. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. The people of Israel were afraid of Moses' radiant face. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons why is because God's glory exposes us. It exposes all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness. I've had glasses for most of my life, and so cleaning these things is part of my day. I regularly clean these several times, usually, throughout the day. And what I've found is I can pull out my microfiber cloth, and I can pull out my glasses cleaner, spray some cleaner on there, and wipe my lenses with my microfiber cloth. And then if I put my glasses on, eh, they look okay. You know, I can see through the lenses, I'm pretty good to go. But I've discovered that if I spray my solution and use my microfiber cloth, but then I hold my glasses up to light, I can see all of the dirtiness that's still there. I can see the wipe marks of the microfiber cloth, sometimes because I've been cursed with an oily face. Thanks a lot, Mom. I get my facial oils on this thing, and then those just get smeared around, and then you can see all the streaks of that. So even though I think it's clean, when I expose them to the light, I see how unclean my lenses truly are. In the same way, God's glory is terrifying because it exposes us, all of us. It exposes the innermost parts of us. We might look clean on the outside, but God's glory penetrates to the inside and shows all of the rottenness, all of the corruption, all the sinfulness, all the stuff that we wouldn't want anybody to see. God's glory lights that up. I think the Israelite people were terrified because God's glory exposed them. Here's what Ed Dennett says. The very glory that shone upon Moses' face searched their hearts and consciences, being what they were, sinners, and unable of themselves to meet even the smallest requirements of the covenant which had now been inaugurated. They were therefore afraid, because they knew in their inmost souls that they could not stand before him from whose presence Moses had come. God's glory is terrifying, because it exposes how dead in sin, how corrupt we really are, how unworthy and incapable we truly are. I can't get my glasses clean, truly clean now, until I hold them up to the light. And then I can see all of the uncleanliness that I might not otherwise see. Now I truly can't get my lenses clean until I hold them up to the light. And in the same way, we cannot become righteous. We cannot be made clean until we expose ourselves to the light of God's glory. In 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul reflects on this whole radiance on Moses' face event. And here's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 13 to 16. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. 
Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. How is the veil removed? How is the unrighteousness and the sinfulness and the rebellion in us removed? We turn to Christ. Now, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 11 to 14. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Paul says, We root out evil by exposing it to the light, the light of Christ. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is Hebrews 1.3, which says, The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Moses' face shone with the afterglow of Yahweh's glory, a glow that, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, was destined to fade away. But Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, a glory that will not fade away. How do we root out sinfulness, unrighteousness, rebelliousness, darkness? We expose it to the light, to the radiance of God's glory, our Savior, Jesus Christ. How are we made clean? How can we become the people God wants us to be? How can we rid ourselves of all the sin that trips us up and entangles us? We expose it to the radiance of God's glory in His Son, Jesus. This brings us to the third T of God's glory. God's glory is transforming. God's glory is transcendent. God's glory is terrifying. And God's glory is transforming. When Moses descended Mount Sinai to come back to the people, Everyone only needed to look at him, and they could tell where Moses had been based off of the glow upon Moses' face. When Moses came down that mountain, everybody could see this man had been with God. Let's look at 2 Corinthians again, and we're going to look at 3 verse 18. And this is Paul's most important point he wants to make while reflecting back on the events of Exodus 34. Let's look at 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we spend time beholding the glory of God, He transforms us into the people He desires us to be. As we carve out time to meet with our Lord, and as we marvel at His transcendent glory, one degree after another, little bit by bit, He makes us into the people He desires us to be, and He makes us into people who reflect the very glory that we marvel at. One of my great joys, and perhaps one of the main reasons why I even took this job, is the first item that's listed on my job description. Number one on my job description, and it literally has a number one next to it, reads, set aside time for personal spiritual growth through daily prayer, Bible study, and devotional time. Grace 242 has told me that the most important thing, and the most effective thing, I believe, that I can be doing, is to carve out time to be with God, and to spend time beholding His glory and in fellowshipping with Him and marveling at His glory, 
to become the man, the Jesus follower, the husband, the dad, and the pastor that God desires me to be. Because if I'm not carving out time to be with God, beholding His glory, conforming to His image, then I've got nothing to give. And I am not worth following if I'm not doing that. If I am not being with the Lord and I am not carving out time to behold His glory and be transformed by Him, then I have nothing to give you as your pastor. A lot of people have a lot of different expectations for their pastor. But the number one expectation, the first and foremost expectation that people ought to have of their pastor is, does our pastor fellowship with God? Does our pastor behold God's glory? Does our pastor carve out time to meet with the Lord? Now that's my job, but beholding God's glory is not just my job, it's a job given to all of us. We all are to behold God's glory. We all are to make time to fellowship with our God, to marvel at His glory, and to, in spending time with Him, become the people God wants us to be. Here's what commentator John Oswald says. What is it that God wants for His creatures? He wants us to be able to know Him intimately. He wants us to reflect His character. He wants to transform our lives by the immediacy of His presence. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, people could immediately see that man has been with God. That man has seen God's glory. That man has spent time with God. Who have you spent time with? What have you been beholding? What do you carve out time to be with? Have you been beholding the glory of God? Or have you been beholding illuminated pixels on a screen? People can see where we've been. People can see the effects. They know, we know, people that have been beholding screens. Because I remember reading an article one time where they're running into all these back problems and spinal issues with people because they're looking at their phones all the time. Or the workforce is seeing the lack in social skills out of people that many jobs require, basic communication skills, because screens have gotten in the way of those basic communication skills. So we can figure it out. We can, over the course of enough time, see what people have been spending their time on and what people have been beholding. And so what do people see when they look at you? Do they see someone who has spent time in the glory of God? Or do they see someone who has been beholding other things? Here's a charge from Pastor Charles Spurgeon. He says, Would you shine in the valley? First go up the mount and commune with God. Would you shine, my brethren, with superior radiance? Then may this be your fervent prayer. Make your face to shine upon your servant. If the Lord shines upon you the light of his countenance, there will be no lack of light in your countenance. In God's light, you shall give light. God's glory is transforming. Pastor Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, we are transformed by being transfixed upon the transfigured one. In Exodus, Moses ascends the mountain to behold God's glory. And in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus ascends a mountain and he brings along Peter, James, and John. And look at what happens in Matthew 17 verse 2. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. 
those men got to see God's glory splashed upon the face of Jesus Christ. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God had to compromise with him because he said, no one can look upon my face and live. And so Moses got to see God's back. But here in Matthew 17, Moses' request 1,500 years later is finally fully fulfilled. Look at 17 verse 3. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. And so it's here, 1,500 years later, that Moses gets to see the face of God, the glory of God. We're going to close with another one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Paul says, For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts, so we could know the glory of God that is seen where? Where is the glory of God seen? In the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we finally get Moses' request fulfilled. We get to behold the glory of God, the face of God, shown where? in the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are transformed when we are transfixed on the transfigured one. God's glory is transcendent, God's glory is terrifying, and God's glory is transforming. Love you, Grace 242. I'll see you next time.